the name of the podcast is What's in the Box. My name is Graham Bryant, and you don't have to put on the red light. And who is this I see before me? I'm Amber Woodward, and at the end of this podcast, I strike. (laughs) This is a podcast that has no affiliation with Letterboxd, but we are avid users of it. And before we get into today's subject, uh, we watched the Oscars last week. Oh, yeah. It's been already like a whole two months since the nominations were announced, and we're now at the end of the rainbow. Uh, what did you think sitting through the whole ceremony? If you can this call year? it a rainbow, uh, <laughs> there were definitely some highs, there were a lot of lows. We're not going to go into the most uh, memeified portion of the so. night. I'm, go- I'm already getting kind of sick of it, and it's just showing a bunch of hypocrisy, and it sounds like people are trying to move on from it, and the internet is just eating it up, and don't need to talk about that. Instead, I want to focus on uh, Troy Kotzer and mm-hmm. Yun Yu Jung, yeah. who had the cutest moment of the night when she held his Oscar for him so he could sign. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. That I was, almost cried. That was a great moment. Um, Coda taking Best Picture. Since our last conversation, I think that I wanted Best Picture to go to Drive My Car. Yeah. I saw it and thought it was terrific. I am afraid other people will see it and think I am pretentious as hell. <laughs> but it, it was just really good. And um, I think Coda was fine. Mm-hmm. I, I watched it. It's very... Uh, it's a little formulaic, but the thing is is that they don't do any of it poorly. Like, it's mm-hmm. all done very well, and it's very satisfying, and I love, obviously, the deaf representation in the film, and the music sounded amazing, and it just, it was a lot of fun, and so I hope it is the start of a positive trend. I think it'll be interesting to come back to, we've talked in the past about doing an episode on um, if the best picture winners hold up Mm. and I think this one will be an interesting one to come back to and see if it has any cultural impact or if it kind of fades into the background as a melodrama that is kind of is special in the representation that it gives but is not like necessarily super memorable yeah the internet has been comparing this win to the king's speech win Mm. in 2010 which i guess we would have to go back and look at all of that again because i like that film Mm. personally i didn't know it was a bad take uh (laughs) for it to win best picture or that people thought it was just too gratuitous i'm not sure but i really enjoyed it so they're also, I mean, the the entire ceremony felt like it hated movies, which is weird that it was wanting to celebrate movies, but at the mm-hmm. same time kind of cannibalistically promote itself as an entity separate from the movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was really weird because it had... Oh, and we, by the way, we were wrong. Uh... We should have been able to guess that Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes would be the three people. Obviously. (laughs) They just kept making jokes about how nobody watched anything, but also wanted to congratulate people for making stuff in the previous year. And I, I... Way to invalidate literally an entire room full of people's hard work. I don't... 
Yeah, I don't know. They they were making so many jokes about how nobody watches anything except Encanto and making like body shaming jokes and yeah, it was really troubling. a bunch of weird stuff. And it, I don't know if that was the personalities themselves or the writers or whoever they had. It feels like the Academy is very insecure about its own identity in that it continues to make the same errors or have mm. people from higher up making them be something else. And then at the same time, they will make these self-deprecating jokes about the fact that they are not progressive or ha have their yeah. hosts be the mouthpiece to say all of these things. They want to be edgy, but they're not prepared to take on the consequences of their own jokes. <sighs> I, I didn't know I could miss Ricky Gervais, but we're here. I didn't know that I would watch a ceremony that felt like it hated movies more than the Golden Globes. Ooh. But it, that's kind of what I felt like, where I felt like I was at. It feels like the Academy is very insecure about its self-image, which is a great transition uh, into what we're talking about today. Seamless. I have been practicing... <laughs> Well, today we are covering the tale of Cyrano de Bergerac throughout film and cinema because recently we went out and saw the Joe Wright-directed film that was nominated for an Oscar and then was immediately forgotten and wasn't talked about after that. It's okay. It was pretty, guys. You I, tried hard. I thought it was a really pretty movie, and I reintroduced my fascination with the story and wanted to make me learn more about its history and all the adaptations into it. Mm -hmm. We found a list on Letterboxd called Cyrano de Bergerac, which has, I believe, five A's in... You gotta go Cyrano de Bergerac! She got it. By Erin Heislop. <laughs> and I was wondering before we went into it, what is your overall history with Cyrano do you, like what what has been your experience knowing the story and it growing with you really the only time I realized I was experiencing a Cyrano in the past was in French class we watched the Gérard Depardieu version from 1990 which I rewatched coming into this podcast today mm -hmm. and I remember Bits and pieces. I remember the balcony scene, um, and I remember the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful collarbones of Roxanne. It's a thing. Go look it up. She's gorgeous. But that was really the only time I'd ever experienced, knowingly, the story of Cyrano de Bergerac. But as we discovered in our research for this uh, list and kind mm -hmm. of going through these different movie adaptations, there's a lot of different versions of yes. Cyrano. And a lot of them done specifically for like teen rom com audiences, mm -hmm. which I hadn't realized. It feels like they're kind of wanting to create a version for English teachers to play mm, in high school I classrooms. Thought about that. I feel like that's probably the goal. I don't know. Maybe it's just the spirit of the story mm -hmm. overall. I didn't hear the name Cyrano de Bergerac until I was in college. And even then, 
I was watching a different play make reference to it. Mm. And then later I went and saw an adaptation of Cyrano where my professor starred and played the, the main character, but they did it in a streamlined way with only five actors, I think, in the entire production and no prosthetics or anything placed on the actor, but rather it's just... The, the whole thing felt minimalistic and had suspension of disbelief to where it gave the audience credit that you understand what's happening and you don't need to have everything explained to you bit by bit in order to care about the characters or be invested in what their internal struggles are. And then I've had friends who really like the story, but I had never read the play on my own. But once this version was announced, I was mm -hmm. very intrigued to see how that would be handled and change with Peter Dinklage and if they were going to put new twists on it. Mm -hmm. I think I only learned very much later that it was a musical and mm -hmm. thought that was interesting. I had no idea going into it. Wait. I didn't. I didn't know they were about to start singing. Oh, no. Roxanne just opened her mouth and starts going the first song. I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing this now. That is so funny. I didn't know that. No, you had I no just, idea it was I a musical. I knew it was Peter Dinklage. I knew it was Cyrano. I know it looked beautiful, and I was excited to see it, but I had no idea. Oh, my God. That's like, that's like as bad as people <laughs> who went to see Sweeney Todd. Whoops. Because in the trailers for that film, there was no singing, and people thought they were going to see a Johnny Depp as a serial killer movie, and at the very beginning of the film is Anthony going, oh, I, I have sailed no the world, beheld its wonders. Oh people walked out of there furious, and I don't blame them. That's kind of how it felt to me in this film when people started singing it was just like oh and now they're singing and mm -hmm. it, but we'll we'll get into that i think the another important thing to note about this most recent adaptation is that it was an off broadway musical written right. by the national uh, which is a band obviously known for kind of sad moody songs alt folk rock sort of deal and a lot of that came through in the music um before we go further, we're going to be talking about several different adaptations of Cyrano de Bergerac on screen, but I was hoping that we could give a little context about Cyrano as a piece throughout time, um, and I understand that you've been doing some reading about yeah, that? Yeah, I did some research, yeah. um, and... It was really interesting because I think throughout this process, we were like, well, where did Cyrano originate? Like, right. what, where's this come from? Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out, lo and behold, Cyrano's a real guy. He's a oh. real human person. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, his name was Savinien de Cyrano de Bergerac. Although at the beginning, de Bergerac wasn't actually there. Uh -huh. It's not actually a name. It's just like... The place he grew up and he added it to be fancy oh okay um he was a novelist a playwright and a duelist and even though there's not a whole lot known about his life historians believe he was born in about 1619 
and only lived into his 30s till about 1655. Oh my god. Um, he wrote a lot of satire. He wrote what's called libertine literature, which is basically like risque and kind of like political and racy sorts of uh, scenes or like tracts, different kinds of things like that. What, was he published like in papers or... Yeah, published in papers, and there's a line in um, where he says, Oh, Moliere used two of my scenes, and that's for real. Moliere did use two yes. of the scenes that Cyrano de Bergerac wrote in real life in his That makes his so place. much more sense now. No, that is a line in it, and... It felt to me like the that they were just name dropping somebody right, famous but into it the was play. True. Oh my god. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Supposedly, he did have a pretty big nose. Is okay. what I hear. Um, so it's like a Napoleon sort of. Sort of, yeah. Big, uh, and apparently, he feature. was you know he was pretty big into dueling. He was very mm -hmm. much like, "Don't insult my nose. I'll cut you." <laughs> Um, but you know, that kind of thing. He was in the military. In fact, there was a Baron Christian de Nouvellette. Okay. Uh, who actually married Cyrano's cousin. She wasn't Roxanne. Her name was Catherine. Okay. And he wasn't involved with her at all, as far as we know. Like, there was no actual, like, romance subplot going okay. on in his real life. Sort of a Lin-Manuel Miranda thing there where yeah. it's just speculation <laughs> or something like that. Um, but the interesting thing is that he was theorized to be in a relationship with another writer, Charles Coipeau de Soucy. Oh. So maybe some LGBT representation yeah. in history. I get, okay, wow. Yeah, and just did not incorporate any of that within the story of Cyrano de Bergerac. Right. Well, yeah. you know, when the play was written, it was like the late 1800s, and that, that probably wouldn't have flown. Oh. I d okay, I don't think I even realized that the play was that recent um, because of where it was set and because of its style. Mm. I associated it as being much older. Um, so that's very interesting that it's not nearly as old as I thought it was. Yeah, it was first performed in 1897, um, and it's said that the audience, after the play finished, applauded for an entire hour. They were so moved by the play. Okay. I've been to plays in France before, and just a little tidbit here, they get serious about their applause. <laughs> like, it, here, I think we just, you know, clap and we try to make it as loud as possible. When they when the actors come out at the end of a play, they will all uh, take their bows and everybody will be clapping. But then as soon as the actors leave, everybody starts syncing up their claps at the same time until the actors come back out for a second bow. And then oh. they come back and they bow again and then everybody goes into a ruckus again and then everybody leaves. Whoa. But it's like such a... <laughs> ritual thing from the few weeks that I spent over there. I had and no idea. Yeah, that's just a weird little thing, but that that's why it doesn't surprise me that they applauded for a full hour. The guy who played the original Cyrano, uh, his name was Benoit Constant Coquelin. Okay. And he played at that first theater where it debuted over 400 performances as Cyrano, and also was in the first film version. 
1900. Okay. Uh, which was shown at the Paris Universal Exposition. And here's a really cool fact, is that it's thought to be the very first film made with both color and sound. What? Yeah, in 1900. All of this is rocking my conception of film history, as well as the play, because I assumed it to be much older than it right. actually is. But it's so close that they had the same actor come back mm -hmm. and portray him on screen. And they're, they're saying that it was it featured color and sound. Yeah, That's... the film was tinted with color, and then they had a synchronized wax cylinder recording of like the dialogue or the music this is so fun and i'm really glad that i have all of this context before we start uh talking about it because i think it's gonna add a lot so where so whereas amber brought all of that wonderful information i went out of my way to read the play since i've never actually done that it is a translation done by carol clark uh, but obviously it is the play written by Edmund Rostand, and I thought it was pretty neat. <laughs> I, I really liked it. It was very lighthearted um, and fun and sweet all at the same time. It, from my memory of the legend of what the play was, I was thinking that in contrast with the new Cyrano that Joe Wright just released, that version felt a lot more like serious mm -hmm. and tragic in its romance and in its characters, which is interesting contrasted with it being a musical. And then when I was reading this play, it felt like everything was much more fun and hopeful and lighthearted. And I don't know, what, what were your overall impressions with the Joe Wright version? Yeah, the Joe Wright version was very serious. I think that's a very good word for it. It played up the tragedy aspect mm -hmm. rather than the um, wordplay and panache. Yeah, that which is an is, important word. Yes. Actually, it's the origination of the word panache. Seriously. Is in uh, the Edmund Rostand play. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because it's the perfect word to describe really the character is. in the play mm -hmm. in general. Yeah, so did you, overall, did you like the Joe Wright version? You know, I did. It's mm. very different than, you know, the play, which I think is pretty directly uh, translated in the 1990 version. So I feel like I read it, even though I didn't read it. Mm -hmm. um, and the music is definitely imperfect, but I enjoyed it a lot, and I thought... It was a very beautiful adaptation, if nothing mm. else. And you're a big fan of uh, Pride and Prejudice and Atonement I am. and I other things. I do so. like Joe Wright films <laughs> in general. They're just so pretty. And I'm a sucker for melodrama, so... <laughs> I mean, I love the Pride and Prejudice film that mm -hmm. he made. I still have other titles that I have to get through. But um, before we continue, I thought it would be helpful to describe what versions we're going to be going over and that some of them have only been seen by one of us some of them we've actually watched together or both have seen at separate mm -hmm. times so uh, there's about six of them we watched total yes two of them we saw to get three of them we saw together yes um we saw Cyrano by Joe Wright together 
We watched Hashtag Roxy by <laughs> Michael Kennedy together. Which um, currently is rocking a 1.4 on Letterboxd. Unfairly, I would say. I would agree with you. Um, and we watched Roxanne by... Oh, I'm going to butcher this. We watched yes. Roxanne by Fred Shapisi. Steve Martin. Um, with Steve Martin, <laughs> the 1987 version. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you went to watch the uh, 1990s Cyrano de Bergerac mm-hmm. with Jean-Paul Ra- uh, Rapineau. Rapineau. Uh, that's the very famous one where Gérard Depardieu is in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very famous French actor and is it's like one of his seminal roles. Which it feels like if we're ever talking about the original Cyrano, you will be talking about the film. Mm-hmm. I will be talking about what I read from the play, right. which is useful, I think, mm-hmm. that we're both coming at the same story from different angles. And then I had some spare time on my hands. I went out of my way to watch uh, Sierra Burgess is a Loser by Ian Samuels. It is a Netflix film, and it is easily the weakest and worst adaptation of Cyrano that I have seen. I also went... At the recommendation of your roommate, it what was also on the list was the half of it by Alice Wu, which I was told was going to be very weak or very bad, and it ended up being my favorite one of all the ones that we're going to talk about. And For clarification, my roommate is a notorious movie snob, bless her heart. But she does not like Hollywood, and anything Mm. that is produced in a typical fashion is bottom of her list. This felt indie to me, though, which was what was interesting. Mm. And so, if she's listening to this, I am so sorry. But I am actually going to (laughs) praise the heck out of this version. I think that's all six of them. So we were going to talk about them all kind of together at the same time by the usual structure of the story, just to compare how each version handles it. Yeah, I think we thought how we'd break it down would be that we'd look at a Cyrano story and say, okay, well, what are the elements that are in every single one of them? Mm. The first thing we wanted to start out with was the theater scene slash a duel scene, uh, which is very important for setting up Cyrano's character as being Mm -hmm. clever, as being involved in dueling or, you know, some kind of combative wordplay. Most times. You know, not all the time. But uh, I, I was thinking we would include that because it also gives us a sense of the setting. Mm. What kind of world is this going to take place in? What is the social structure of all the characters? And I think it does a real good job of that. Uh, In the Joe Wright version, we get this version of Paris that's very dark, uses a lot of shadows and a lot of like dark color palettes. It was useful because I forgot about the theater scene at the beginning of the story where Cyrano publicly challenges an actor on stage for him to leave despite the rest of the crowd wanting to see him. (laughs) He successfully convinces them that they don't. And somehow this makes the character endearing. On paper, it does not, to me, it does not sound like 
that is a person you would want to root for. But in the play and in most versions, it's actually incredibly endearing to see him steal the spotlight and usher this Hamish actor mm-hmm. off stage. He's just got so much swagger and mm-hmm. uh, so much, you know, wit that you're excited to hear what he has to say next. Mm-hmm. So even though he's interrupting this play and kind of storming onto the scene and you're like, oh, who's this asshole? It's, mm-hmm. He like he That's becomes lovable just by virtue of his self-assuredness. Right. And it that everybody at least in the in the original play, they describe who Cyrano is through rumors and before we actually meet him. And my favorite description of the character as a whole, I believe Lebret describes him as a fair hand and a broad sword, mm. which describes that he is both bold but uh, decisive in the in the choices that he makes and in the way he carries mm-hmm. himself uh, throughout life. I think uh, something that I really liked seeing repeated was the kind of joke scene where Cyrano mm-hmm. is predicting the jokes that these people are making about him. Uh, and you see this in hashtag Roxy to pretty good effect mm-hmm. and in Roxanne also when they're at the bar and Steve Martin is going, oh, let's do it in like the philosophic style mm-hmm. or in the... There's a whole sequence where that that gets repeated because it's classic mm-hmm. that Cyrano is insulted for having a big nose and he is disappointed in the accoster's lack of creativity mm-hmm. in how he has his nose has been described and then just to show off he lists off all of these different ways that you could make fun of his nose and it shows you not only that he's clever but it's also a double-edged sword that shows he thinks about this a lot. Right. He is constantly thinking of the ways that people could make fun of his nose so that he has a counter mm-hmm. for that. And so it's a brilliant display of not only how he can take care of himself, but that he is also very insecure about it mm-hmm. at the same time. And I, lo- I love that about the character because it feels so genuine uh, mm-hmm. in how people uh, want to be perceived and think about themselves. But we, we started with Paris in the Joe Wright version in the hashtag Roxy, which is a... It feels like it would be a Disney Channel original movie, but slightly more edgy. I suggested that we watch it because I thought it was going to be horrible. And then it wasn't. It wasn't really. There was stuff about it that was like sappy or like a little cringy, but like it's still the story Mm -hmm. and the characters are still pretty endearing in their own ways. The writing was decent. Mm -hmm. It was sometimes I would say tonally inconsistent in that like they would make jokes that were slightly more edgy than Mm-hmm. the age level they were aiming who, who for. Who is this audience? Yeah, yeah, but it was overall, like, strong character work. Yeah. They are students. Uh, this version takes place in De Bergerac High School, uh, where they are all high school students. And the way that this one starts off is that 
instead of it being a play, we have a football player come up on stage to be commended in the school auditorium, but through the PA system being hacked, it is revealed that he has been sending unsolicited pictures to various women throughout the school, uh, including Roxanne. And so he is threatened to have his photos leaked to the entire school if he does mm -hmm. not leave the stage immediately, which I thought was going to be so cheesy and so lame, and it was actually kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> this version of Cyrano, whose name is Cyrus in right. uh, hashtag Roxy, is kind of out for justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's very, we're going to get more into his character later, but it does set up that it's a high school. Danny Trejo is the principal for some reason. You know. <laughs> and, it, and they even has a poster of Machete in his office, which was incredible. I forgot about that. It's so good. Yeah, it kind of sets up what the different cliques mm -hmm. and the different hierarchies that exist throughout the school and the same way that the Joe Wright version does. In the film that I watched called uh, Sierra Burgess is a Loser, it is also set in a high school, but it's a little different than Hashtag Roxy in that it's a lot meaner. It leans more into the kind of John Hughes uh, social structure mm. and teenage archetypes. They don't have the theater scene, but they do have a sort of duel in that they're in the girl's bathroom and Cyrano slash Sierra is insulted with a quote and she corrects the quote showing that she is a literature nerd. And then she kind of just walks out as if she dominated wow. the bully, but there's no audience, there's no grand spectacle. So it kind of just feels like, okay. What a letdown. So she reads a little bit. But um, it wasn't a very good comeback, and it I, I couldn't even bother to remember what was explicitly said. But then we have Roxanne mm -hmm. by Fred, but by Fred. <laughs> um, and it's a, I had to do some research, but it is the town of Nelson. It's very, like, Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. small town, very, uh, like, bright and everybody in the town is a character mm -hmm. it's small town america mm -hmm. is how it really feels and it's all wholesome mm -hmm. and jovial and everybody just and the opening along. duel yes the opening duel is when he's insulted so fun. right it's just like these two random guys going down the sidewalk mm. and he starts fighting them with a uh, tennis racket. Because he just happens to have one. So they have a duel there, but they also... And there's no grand theater scene, but there also is the insult right. thing that happens later. He makes, like, a bet that he can name 20 more clever ways to make a joke about his nose. Mm -hmm. And then just, like, happens to know some martial arts and takes the guy down when he gets pissed off. It's a very just silly movie. It's, it's very so, lighthearted. It's so 1980s. Yeah. It's so very, like, 
crowd pleasing mm-hmm. and all of the tropes that feel like ah this is a movie and mm-hmm. um but it, it's very it's enjoyable and then we have the setting in the half of it uh the small town of Squamish where it feels kind of like a coastal northern city it it's a very small conservative town also kind of making it feel like that american town but Everybody is very, like, straight-laced and keeps their heads down and are just trying to get through life so that they can go day by day. And it's not as bright or as jovial, but Mm -hmm. it's not as, like, dark or oppressive either. Mm -hmm. But it's a very... I I really like that they make it charming in a very kind of depressing way that feels very familiar. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there is directly a dual scene or a theater scene in that one, but it, ju- but just going off of settings, I wanted to establish that one. Right. And so I guess we should talk about the character himself, right. the titular character, uh, Cyrano, who is full of, as you have mentioned, panache, as Ooh. well as uh, imposter syndrome, which feels <laughs> very relatable these days. Yeah. The 90s version, the uh, Rapino mm. version, is, as we said, more directly translated from the play. So Cyrano in that one is very verbose. He's very into wordplay. There's the famous scene where Depardieu has a duel, and he's saying, at the end of this poem, I will strike you <laughs> at the end of each verse. And the guy slowly freaks out as he gets closer and closer (laughs) to the end of the poem and he's just very clever and very um much into dueling and like his swordsmanship and he's strong and very proud Mm -hmm. Um, and they do they do that with the joe wright version but i'm not as much of a fan of it because it's done in the form of a song and the character of Cyrano, played by Peter Dinklage, feels a lot more reclusive. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to be charming or witty, he, he makes a bunch of jokes about how he frightens small children, or it just feels like a monster, and Halloween is his favorite holiday. And I see it, but at the same time, I missed that fun playfulness that we get in the listing all of the insults and yeah. the the duel of wits as it's well as the sword duel. It's about wordplay and mm-hmm. um, just like the joy of poetry mm-hmm. in the Joe Wright version. And like you were saying, much more morose, much more serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it just feels very dark because at the end of the duel in the play, and I'm assuming in the 1990s version, uh, he wounds the man mm-hmm. that insults him, and he's carried off. In this one, he just, just kills like, him. Straight up slays the guy with no preamble. Right, <laughs> and which shocked me, because I'm like, I don't remember him just killing a man at the beginning of the story. It makes it a little bit harder to root for him and be sympathetic for him, but, you know, mm-hmm. they get there. And we also have... Cyrus from Hashtag Roxy, portrayed by Jake Short, whereas the Peter Dinklage version, they swap the nose trait for dwarfism. 
in most other versions, they keep the nose. Mm-hmm. And in hashtag Roxy, uh, there's a very awkward prosthetic nose. In my opinion, it's a very awkward prosthetic nose that they have on the character. He's a lot more jaded and, and feels much more pessimistic about the world. It, it kind of felt like that he was just... He he didn't really believe in virtues, but at the same time, he wanted to take down people who were mm-hmm. hypocritical and were pretending to be something that they weren't. Pretty nihilistic for a kid's movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, it, he felt like a teenager. But yeah. uh, what's cool about him is that he's not a fight. He cannot fight, but he's a hacker. And he likes to use technology to give him social status and intimidation mm-hmm. and that's why people are afraid of him and don't not not necessarily out of respect but out of fear tactics that he will dox them or mm-hmm. leak all of their emails or do something speaking of uh making questionable choices yeah sierra burgess uh, oh boy so sierra burgess is portrayed by shannon purser who was the darling of season one of stranger things um we all love barb we miss barb but she's played by shannon purser who is in my opinion a good actor um and i enjoy watching her but in most versions of Cyrano, they give some reason or some external factor as to why the protagonist feels outcast or what's keeping them from getting what they want and being happy. This can stem to being something superficial or it can go into disability coding, whether it be dwarfism or a large nose. In Sierra Burgess, her issue is that she looks like Shannon Purser. Oh no. Kind of the same way that like in Amy Schumer films, the joke is that she looks like Amy Schumer. Yeah. And the movie goes out of its way to convince you that their life is hard it's because so of gross. the way that they look. Like what a dispiriting role to play. I, I don't I mean she goes for it. Like she does the movie but like Shannon Purser is a delightful person to watch, and I don't. It, it just felt so weird and gross that think, it was like yeah, yeah. It points to this line I think that exists in a Cyrano story of like you can have something that seems fair to be like oh this feature makes me feel like an outcast like a giant nose mm-hmm. or you know what have you but just saying oh this person is not conventionally attractive is not it no, no it's not enough it's... They, they make jokes about like her needing to diet or her just being plain or mm-hmm. something like that but like the the writing really goes out of its way to make the audience see that, but I didn't. I just felt like I was watching Shannon Purser, and I didn't inherently have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Um, The character is not great and is actually kind of... Her personality is what makes her awful more so and probably has her not having many friends. She is the daughter of a famous novelist, the same actor who played Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, Yeah, he's like a 
a big writer, which puts pressure on her to follow in his footsteps a little bit. The movie mm-hmm. kind of forgets about it from time to time. She tutors people in English because, as I mentioned before, she really likes books. She is a band geek with her friend, and that's something that Obviously, like that makes puts her uncool, on the lower, right? yeah, on the lower end of the ladder. And uh, we'll we'll get into it later about what happens with the plot and and the setup. But they forgot to like give her the character that makes Cyrano so endearing. Mm-hmm. The either the wit or the skill or the emotional like purity of the character it just isn't there but then going back to somebody who is likable uh steve martin in roxanne (laughs) who uh, is i think he's talented i've heard from sources he's in a couple of things that he's gone places at some point yeah he'll have a career they have him play CB, also known as Charlie, who does have the big nose again. Uh, he is just the guy in town that you go to. He's the guy you call when something needs fixing or somebody needs a friend. He's a renaissance man. Right. He has many talents. He's the chief of the fire department, which is kind of hapless. They're... Very bumbling and bad at their jobs. Well, as firemen often are. Oh, I mean, we know firemen, gosh. Mm -hmm. Which is the only downside of this character, is that they had to make him a fire chief instead of a soldier. Right, that Jake prop out there. But it's also pretty cool that in this version, he is one of the few protagonists that actually does get called out and is confronted with this questionable thing that he does and that gives him a little more humility then we have ellie in the half of it i know i keep going back to this character but what's really interesting about what they did for her is that she doesn't have any physical things she was born in china and moved to the small white protestant town Uh, English is her second language, but she also is forced to support her father because of his difficulty finding work uh, within the country. And so besides having kind of that culture gap within the town, she also has to find ways to financially support him and constantly Mm. spends time with him. The way that she makes scratch for their family is for her to write other people's papers for them. And so she's really good at writing about things in many different ways and sounding like other people, which is a factor that comes back into play. And even the teacher, like, knows that she's the one doing it, but doesn't want to call her out or discipline her for it because then the whole class would be failing. <laughs> so it's it's really endearing that it's like, yeah, I know you're doing this, but it's also really impressive that you're able to write about Socrates in six different ways and unbeknownst to anyone else in town including maybe herself she is lesbian and that hasn't come out because she hasn't had interactions with many people to explore that she also because of her social isolation unlike Cyrano she is clueless when it comes to love she does not know how to be graceful or charming Mm -hmm. in any of those ways 
ways. And so that part of the movie is her acting like a student and trying to study how to be charming or express feelings to other people, which I found very effective and a cool twist on the character is that you're watching her grow into the the protagonist and that legendary figure. Mm-hmm. Then we have the so we've got somewhat the titular duel. character. We've got uh, Sierra now, and then of course we cannot go forward without having Roxanne. All she wants to do is party all night. Uh, I was dancing. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Roxanne. I feel like Roxanne is a tough character to balance and to nail. Because it's very easy to make her into a lamp, Mm -hmm. to make her a plot element that drives the story forward. It's such a high concept play that you have to have a character that is a fetishist about words and having the... Which can either be completely understandable Mm -hmm. or silly. Right. I feel like with her character... A lot of writers find the challenge of wanting to bring more dimensionality Mm -hmm. to her within this formula where in her place that might not fit. Right. How do we give her agency? Right. How do we make her interesting? Mm -hmm. I think something you and I both kind of forgot about was that in uh, both the 90s version and in the play, Roxanne disguises herself and when Cyrano and his men go off to war, she shows up to feed them. They're all starving. They have no food. They've been crossing the battle lines to steal apples. Right. Like, And then out of nowhere, here comes Roxanne with loaves and meat and everything they could possibly want. She makes this decision herself to cross the lines of battle, to be with Christian, and to support the troops. I feel like it's a... It's sort of a cop-out because they're like, oh, the main character that drives the story isn't here. We need to find a reason for her to be here Mm -hmm. because it's a play. But at the same time, you're right. It gives her more of a character because she has a direct effect on what is happening in the play and to the fate of the characters. Mm -hmm. In the Joe Wright version, we have Haley Bennett portraying Mm -hmm. her. And she's amazing. She does great. She, she gets all of the radio hits in She's the musical. beautiful. She sings well. Mm-hmm. You know, but she doesn't have quite that same role. She kind of stands back a little bit mm-hmm. more. And she gets a lot of songs sound a little similar to me. Possibly mm-hmm. somebody who knows more about music may disagree with me. But there, there definitely was a part in the movie where she was serving the purpose of the character's desires Mm -hmm. and the movie hinged on whether or not those desires were being fulfilled in order for the plot to move forward. I think it's a difficult balance. We've talked about this a little bit, the way that Roxanne's character is a bit of a difficult balance in the fact that does she have agency, does she not? And I think Mm. also that can sort of go into this idea of the male gaze versus, like, female agency. Because Mm. in in most versions, she has all of the main character's attention. She is 
beloved by Cyrano, Christian falls heavily in love with her, and the Duke de Guiche is also in love with right. her. All of the moving parts are centered on her through this kind of possibly fetishistic gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not her fault, but is also something that deprives her of a greater role. Well, I think there is a theme in Cyrano overall about projecting onto other people mm. and putting people up on pedestals or having mm-hmm. uh, having unrealistic expectations of them. Whereas Cyrano is that guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he is the guy that meets all of those... Un- like, he, there's a plot point that's carried throughout a few of them that he fights off ten men at the same time. Uh, sometimes, I think, in versions it's eight oh, or a dozen. Oh, in the 90s version, it's a hundred. It's a hundred. Okay, because I think he... In the play, he lies and says mm. that that they found ten men's helmets, but then when he's talking to Roxanne, he says, oh, it was a hundred. Oh, no, in, in the 90s version, they show, like, a hundred guys just camping out. Oh, that's <laughs> ridiculous. I love that, though. But, like, yeah, sure, he can do that. It's, it's mm-hmm. the story. But then with Roxanne, everybody holds her as this angelic figure, mm-hmm. and Cyrano is the one who knows that what she wants is a soul to connect with. Mm. She thinks she wants... She thinks she will find a beautiful soul in a man that she finds beautiful. And in certain versions, what I like, but it's also a hard thing to balance, is that they go out of their way to show that she is projecting onto those people Mm -hmm. as well. She projects onto Christian and expects Christian to fulfill this requirement in order to be her partner. And because of that, she doesn't really see him. She sees what she wants to see in him. And they do that in Hashtag Roxy with Roxy Rostand, which Mm -hmm. is named after the writer Edmund Rostand, portrayed by Sarah Fisher. Her character is not really royalty. She is the popular girl who likes books, wants people to be sensitive and Mm well-read, and is a little judgy. A little more judgy than I think other versions of the character. Because like you pointed out, that there's a moment where she's talking to Christian, and he is a fan of things like Star Trek or Mm -hmm. Archie Comics, things that he actually enjoys. And those turn her away or turn her off because it's considered to be lowbrow art and not the thing that like meets her standards right which raises this question about the hierarchy of mm-hmm. what's intelligent what is acceptable right. what is art um, which doesn't come up in every single adaptation but in particular in hashtag roxy right and we're talking about pop culture and we're talking about all of these different versions of the same story and it, it's this weird implication that you can't have meaningful conversations Mm -hmm. about different types of mediums uh, just because of their cultural perception. Sure. We also have other versions of the character in Sierra Burgess. It is Jamie, who is the quarterback, so it's gender-flipped. He is a very sensitive kind of guy who... He knows uh, American Sign Language because he has a little brother who is deaf. 
he's not very social or goes with the flow, and that's kind of what isolates him from other people, but he's not the object of everyone's desire. He's kind of this quiet boy who has this expectation placed on him, but is actually a lot more sensitive and thoughtful than he is perceived. You got Daryl Hannah's Roxanne in the titular film Roxanne. Mm -hmm. And in this one, it's cool because they make her an astronomer. Which is a little different. Yeah. Yeah. They also establish that she has just gotten out of a relationship, and that gives her a little bit more of a natural motivation to find somebody that she connects with intellectually because she was tricked before and she doesn't want to have her heart Mm -hmm. broken again just based on looks. And then you have... Aster Flores from the half of it and she's a very different version of the character because she's the daughter of the pastor in the small Christian town but she's not very she's a little more trapped in that there's this expectation placed on her because of being a student and because of the way that she looks that she's dating the star football player and that she's expected to be perfect and all of these things and so she doesn't have the opportunity to find a genuine connection with someone because she's kind of just mm-hmm. going through the motions and at one point the Duke de Guiche stand-in describes her through a bible verse that says the uh, first corinthians 13 4 Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. And that is why I love you. And that she has had all of this personality kind of just stripped away from Mm. her because of this town and because of her status. And the movie kind of refutes that verse uh, and that definition of love. Interesting. And I think it's a lot of fun. But... I think there's a topic that we're both anxious to talk about because it feels generally overlooked. Yeah, talking about Christian, right? Mm-hmm. I think Christian, I th- as you've pointed out, can kind of make or break an adaptation. Right. Because if he is made too stupid, it doesn't make sense. But if he's too clever... It also doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. There is a good level of himbo that he needs to make. (laughs) Yes, he is the himbo that is the reflection of what the story says about society, Mm -hmm. I feel like. As all characters are kind of trapped by their appearance or feel trapped by their own appearance in these stories, Christian is the one who needs to self-actualize and grow into a full person because he also kind of just goes through the motions and is expected to be something by everyone else constantly throughout Mm -hmm. uh, all versions of the story. How would you describe them in the traditional version, or at least in the 1990s version, How the essence of Christian Newville? You know, I think in that version, it's similar to some of the others we've watched where he is a soldier he's brand new to the regiment Mm -hmm. and he is struck by the beauty of Roxanne Mm -hmm. and they both kind of like we're saying project onto each other this ideal partner and he is particularly fixated by her beauty but doesn't know how to communicate Mm -hmm. uh, with her and obviously 
Roxanne, being uh, head over heels with him, asks her cousin Cyrano to get him to write her letters, Mm -hmm. which begins the whole hijinks. Right. He, in this version, similar to, I think, the Joe Wright version, has this conflict as you get further into the film where he's thinking, oh, wait a second, like, Cyrano is the one who's in love with her. I don't know if I can continue this. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. if this feels ethical or if she really loves me. Um, And that's kind of a heartbreaking moment where he's like, wait a second, she doesn't love me, she loves you. And then he goes and gets killed and it's like, oh, sometimes, buddy. He, I mean, it. Right. There's this moment where he has an awakening, and it's a very satisfying part because it's the first time that we see the character not doing things because other people have expected him to be something, or that he's just following his desires. Mm-hmm. He he overcomes all of that and consults his own ethics and his own heart about what is right and what is wrong. Christian in the original play is not portrayed as quite a himbo as he is in most versions of the story because he actually is kind of smart or at least trained to be witty in insulting Cyrano. Mm -hmm. He does it as a dominant power gesture sort of thing. Everyone tells him not to make fun of Cyrano's nose because he's the captain. And so to instill himself into the group, he goes out of his way to think of many different insults to Cyrano's Mm -hmm. face. And I wasn't expecting that because Mm -hmm. in the Joe Wright version, the ongoing joke is that he doesn't know certain words or he's unable to find the word to describe a feeling. Mm-hmm. I feel like they make the character a lot more tragic in the mm-hmm. Joe version that I really appreciated. Portrayed by Kelvin Harrison Jr., he gets this whole verse where he talks about his upbringing, that he's the son of a soldier and has only been trained on how to kill other people well and because of that he does not have a reason for living which he believes Cyrano has which is the soul the appreciation of art Mm -hmm. and the ways to express yourself to the outside world and that he was never given that I had to give the film a lot of credit for even wanting to touch that side of the character as a commentary on not only how the characters typically used, but on just veteran military life in general, mm-hmm. that they're not expected to emote or express these things. And that is the tragedy of the character. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's one other thing, though, that I thought was annoying with the Joe Wright version, and it made sense in Edmund Rostand's mm-hmm. play, is that Christian will eventually die. In the film, he kind of just, upon learning that Cyrano's in love with Roxanne, and therefore Roxanne is more in love with Cyrano than himself, he says that she needs to make the choice between the two of them, and then uncharges ahead of everybody else into battle. He just runs over a hill where people tell him not to do so, and he is immediately shot and killed. 
It to me, it felt like well, the movie needs to keep going and it needs to be sad, so that's what we did. It feels much more natural in the '90s version mm-hmm. where they have this conversation, and then they're being attacked, and mm-hmm. he charges, and he's you know fighting valiantly. Mm-hmm. And falls, unfortunately. But it's not just like, I'm going to run out in front of everybody and get ambushed. In the text of the play, he has a specific intention for running away from Cyrano Mm -hmm. to talk to Roxanne. And he says, I need to go check on a sentry. It's like, I need to relay with the other men and see what's going on over there. Mm -hmm. And then Cyrano, as he's trying to muster up the feelings to talk to her hears the shot happen, mm-hmm. realizes what it, in the commotion what has just happened, and is trying to then weigh between whether to confess what he feels, but also he's wanting to protect her because he does care about her. And so he's trying to mitigate what she's just about to realize. And in Christian's dying moments, I don't know about in the play, but mm. in the movie, he goes up to Christian and says, no, she chose you. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Right, he decides to lie to her. Or, no, he... He lies to Christian. Yeah, he yeah. lies to Christian and to give him peace mm. and decides to bury all of those feelings once Oof. again. What I really liked about that moment, though, in Hashtag Roxy was, as we were just talking about her before, she is a little judgmental and then as he is a linebacker for the football team he is there playing the game and she is watching him but she says that oh i find all of this stuff boring but i want to get back to the side of you that i like mm-hmm. and it shows that she doesn't really have an appreciation for who he is and what he loves to do and he has that moment of maturity yeah that he's like i don't want someone to like me for anybody else than who i am and then realizes that cyrus is the one that loves her and makes the choice to say no i'm gonna just step away from that and instead of him being killed he just has his leg messed up a little bit and that's how they yeah i thought that was kind of a funny um Mm -hmm way of getting around the deaths in the play Mm -hmm. with what they did in hashtag roxy was like they both end up in the hospital right and you get that conversation of him lying to her and saying oh she chose you and then he's like no she wouldn't have he's portrayed as being very stupid or being very like oblivious but he's actually like not Mm -hmm. and has and calls cyrus out on his bullshit yeah and that's really satisfying to me to see christian have the upper hand and in both emotional maturity and in wit with the protagonist i i really enjoyed that i think he and joe wright's christian were my favorite christians Mm -hmm. Which is kind of funny, (laughs) because I don't know that they were my favorite adaptations generally, Mm -hmm. but I think they did the best versions of Christian. Yeah, in in Roxanne, he's like just a fireman who shows up, and the whole joke is that he like gets sick whenever he has to talk to women, but then he's able to talk to a bartender in a later scene, there's no given reason of why he's able to do that. It's just 
Magic. It's, it's just, just love, love, I guess. Yeah. He's a himbo too, and I, he's probably my least favorite mm. of the Christians, just because it feels like the 1980s jock character to Steve Martin's geek character. Mm. Uh, in Sarah Burgess, Christian is actually Veronica, who is the head cheerleader, is very superficial, is very mean, and is nicknamed Veronica because she's not very good at her grades and her studies. And that's her biggest insecurity is that she's only valued for her looks and doesn't have any value as a person. We're going to get to the plot. And that's where I feel like I can talk about how they use her as a character. But in Sierra Burgess, the characters are least like the characters that they're based off of. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. With Hashtag Roxy, I thought they were going to mess everything up. And then we both enjoyed it. I didn't realize that in Sierra Burgess, yes, you can mess this story up uh, yeah. if you really try. Then the biggest himbo of them all, the, the <laughs> king himbo, and it's just absolutely delightful, is the character of Paul Munsky in the half of it, played by Daniel Deemer. A delight in almost every scene that we see him in. He hires Ellie to help him with a letter that he wants to write to Aster um, because that's her job is writing essays for other people and not knowing that she also likes Aster as well. And she isn't even fully cognizant of, of the fact that she likes the same girl as he does. But it's really funny because they're, the whole movie kind of ends up being more about the friendship between the Cyrano and Christian character mm, than it is about the pursuit of the love interest. Yeah. And it kind of makes a more profound statement on what love is and what the story can actually mean. I'll, I'll get there eventually, but before we move forward, uh, what I love about Paul is that while he is also football guy and, and does all that stuff, his family is really into food and so he wants to be a chef but he wants to make things slightly differently from the family's traditional recipes and he's scared of like them finding out about that and so as he is learning to be a more cultured man from ellie and like become a little bit smarter in literature and in writing he shares back with her his dreams of wanting to nice. be yeah. of wanting to be chef there's a lot of feel good moments in the story mm. but we should talk about what Cyrano is actually about if people have made it this far oh yeah the if you're still listening that. yeah <laughs> and you don't know the plot of Cyrano i apologize yeah, yeah, they clicked on it, so I think we're okay. But um, why don't we talk about what the concept of Cyrano is, like, now that we know yeah. the three main characters? So the classic Cyrano setup is that Roxanne sees Christian, and Christian sees Roxanne, mm -hmm. and they both are struck dumb with love for mm -hmm. each other. But Cyrano is the one who knows how to get to Roxanne's heart because mm -hmm. he knows that she loves words and loves poetry. And Christian is new to the army, is just joining Cyrano's mm -hmm. regiment. The new kid in town. Right. And is trying to figure out how to win 
uh, Roxanne over. And so what Cyrano does, knowing fully that he is in love with Roxanne and taking advantage of his poetic feelings for her, offers to write letters for Christian mm. to Roxanne so that she will fall in love with him. Cyrano's, his main goal in love and in life is for Roxanne to hear the words that he feels for her. Mm-hmm. And Christian is the vehicle and the means for that to happen. And so even if she never knows that it's him, if she hears his words and loves them, then he has succeeded. He has been loved. Right. Yeah. And there is the classic balcony scene mm-hmm. where Christian attempts to woo Roxanne, but fumbles it big time. Mm-hmm. And so Cyrano has to take over. And... He can only say, I love you, and that's not good enough. Right, or like, I want to kiss you. Mm-hmm. Ooh, not, not what she was looking for. Mm-hmm. So in the balcony scene, she's standing above and he's hidden by the darkness below. Mm-hmm. And Cyrano is able to finally confess his feelings by pretending to be Christian's true voice. Mm-hmm. Which is sometimes a little unbelievable if the actor's voices sound very different. <laughs> this is the scene in every play that has ever been written. But it always is fun to watch, mm-hmm. and it's always great. But it, it's also all preceded by these multiple letters that Cyrano has written in Christian's name so that by the time this encounter happens, Roxanne is already convinced that she is in love mm-hmm. with Christian, but then that disconnect happens. The, one of my favorite things about the character is that in the original version, he is the guy. Like, he is almost perfect in a friend. He's the guy that everybody looks up to. He's the guy people trust. He's the guy who can't fail. But it's because of this one thing that's always different, but usually is the nose, that convinces himself that he is unworthy of Roxanne's love. Doesn't give her enough credit that she would be able to reciprocate his feelings Mm -hmm. if she if he were to say it to her face to them love is is this freedom is this way of being genuine right in the joe wright version it's a song Mm -hmm. that's really good but like you were saying it's like oh peter dinklage has a very different voice from kelvin harrison jr and it's a little unbelievable that you wouldn't that she would believe yeah, that. Yeah, you just have to accept that they're swept up in their love for <laughs> each other and kind of suspend your disbelief. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very fun harmonies, mm-hmm. and it's a very fun duet, and actually might be one of my favorite parts from that film. In Hashtag Roxy, they do the inevitable, oh, well, what if it was done through texts instead of letters? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not quite about poetry it's just about sharing quotes from different books and then oh they're able to do the balcony scene because of skype and he's a hacker Mm -hmm. and he's able to mask his face that way and it's still very sensitive and well-spoken but they went there and i was ready for it to be hacky and i don't think it was like it it felt legitimate enough to me. I don't know about you. Yeah, 
It was an interesting way that they like used a like Skype call breaking up as a way mm-hmm. of being like, well, my voice is distorted for a reason. And magical Hollywood hacking where right. you can just do anything at right. any time and it you don't question it. It works. Wanting to talk about this concept, it's a little controversial, I think. Or it should be. I don't know what it is about the premise of Cyrano in general, where I understand the tension while still finding all of the characters endearing. Mm -hmm. I understand that he's lying to her, but it's also in that perverse way of, but he's not. Like, this is the way he's convinced himself to be honest with her Mm -hmm. through this very convoluted way. And there's the desperation of unrequited love, which buys you a lot of points in that. And everyone can identify with wanting to say something but feeling vulnerable Mm -hmm. and if only there were a way to be able to do that without that fear. And I always thought, well, why have people not complained about this more or found ways to make Cyrano not endearing more? And then I watched Sierra Burgess is a Loser on Netflix and they did it. They changed the entire premise to be just catfishing. There is no nuance or poeticism to what they're doing, and then they double down on it to make it worse. In the for for anybody who doesn't want to watch this film ever, if you will allow me, I will just go through the bullet points. In this version, none of the characters know each other very well. Sierra Burgess puts up a flyer for tutoring lessons, and Veronica, who is the cheerleader, just takes down the flyer completely out of spite and to look cool in front of her friends. Then later, when Jamie approaches her at a diner, she gives Sierra's number as a joke instead to the quarterback in order to prank her and get the guy off of her back. And so Jamie starts texting Sierra, thinking that Sierra is Veronica, and they've created a setup where... Cyrano is actually innocent of the plot and didn't had no say in what and how the circumstances were set up. Which Sierra immediately suspects that he's texting the wrong person, but just doesn't say anything because she enjoys the conversation that's happening, especially because he sends a photo of himself first before they really start talking, and so she just goes along with it and even tells her friends that she's seeing someone when mm. she is. Yeah, it's, it's so... It's that cool. lack of agreement between her and the Christian character mm-hmm. that makes it catfishing, I think. Yes, and, well, and the, the Roxanne stand-in being a guy, and it has this inversion, and I think the movie wants you to think that's okay, And then it goes to the extent of, because Veronica is failing all of these classes, Sierra agrees to tutor her for free if she can use her face and her body to keep the charade going. I don't like that at all. No. And so it's where Christian and Cyrano are both in on tricking Roxanne continually and there isn't like this triangle of things being unknown Mm -hmm. and it escalates to the point where she is stalking them on a date 
and Veronica is just barely saying anything. And then as they're in the parking lot, she makes uh, Jamie close his eyes because he wants a kiss. And then Sierra is hiding under the car, comes out from under the car, and kisses him without his consent. Because he thinks that he's kissing a different woman. Oh no! And the movie presents it as a romantic moment. How funny! And then later, when he meets her, purely by circumstance, she decides to pretend to be deaf so that she doesn't have to talk because they've been talking on the phone and he would recognize her voice you could see the face i'm making and so she immediately starts making up sign language in order to dodge the conversation jamie says your name is shit pizza oh wow i didn't know you were deaf hold on this is my little brother who is also deaf I'm trying to make him into the world's shortest quarterback someday. And making him more endearing, making her seem worse. And she has to double down on being deaf for the rest of the film. That's not great. No. And the movie reinforces this by making you think, well, I should feel sorry for her. When she has done nothing but lie to people and not have any personality other than that... I'm glad I missed this one. This is the one you need to miss. Um, And it's just, I don't... And then she has, like, this whole sobbing thing to her parents for wanting to instill optimism in her. And she says, you can spout that bullshit all day long, but you don't know how hard life is when you look like me. That's, like, supposed to be the Oscar moment. Or that justifies all of the shit she just did. Yikes. You know, in Roxanne, I think it's a little more <laughs> fun. <laughs> uh, in Roxanne, yeah, it, it, it works out a lot better. It's funny in the beginning she gets locked out of the house mm-hmm. um, naked, unfortunately. Because it's the 80s. Because it's the 80s. And that's a little bit exploitative, but okay. Mm. Um, and Cyrano meets her because he has to go, like jimmy the lock basically Mm -hmm. and is an acrobat and can just climb anything which is so random i love it right it doesn't make any sense he's the he is the dream man (laughs) and he happens to look like steve martin and i like that in these modern day i'm putting quote adaptations Mm -hmm. because we're talking about 1987 they think oh well why don't we use for for like the balcony scene and for stuff like that, why don't we use technology like radios and little hidden earpieces mm-hmm. in order to coach? Uh, because we can do that now. And like by the time you get to like the current day, that's stupid because you can just text people now and you don't have to see each other face to face all right. the time. Mm-hmm. I really like. Do you remember what specifically? CB says to Roxanne that justifies the title of the film being Roxanne. Remind me. It's so fun because I I can't remember exactly how they say it in the original play, but in this version, they have him say, I have trouble finding the words to express to you because they've all been used before. Words today are just boiled down to advertisements and Mm. everybody is trying to sell something 
all the time and convince you to do something, when all I need is the sound of your name. Ever since I heard it, it is all I hear in everything now. It is the most, like, pure thing, and he... He says, I hear your, like, name in the wind, Roxanne, Roxanne, Roxanne. And so they just drill it into the premise and into the character's endearment before ultimately, because there isn't a war and because they're all firemen, mm -hmm. uh, she's able to call him out on his bullshit. And that's a fun confrontation that we usually don't get because he's usually dying by the time right. that he, uh, she finds out. Mm -hmm. And then if you'll indulge me, going back into the half of it, the way that they stretch that idea out is that because it's such a small town and everybody already has each other's numbers, they move it into a WhatsApp kind of software mm. so that you can set up anonymous usernames and have conversations that happen in there. It's really fun because it has Ellie learning more about Aster as they're talking, so she gets to learn more about herself by having these exchanges of them both feeling trapped and like they're going nowhere in a mm, small town yeah. like Squamish. It's a really cool exchange that they come up with instead of the balcony scene they have um paul and aster sitting at a diner together on their first date while she's actually seeing a different guy but they're just hanging out and he isn't able obviously like in most versions he isn't able to get the words out right ellie from the van in the parking lot just starts texting aster and then text paul pretend you're looking at your phone and so the way that they have the anonymous exchange is that Aster reveals that she likes painting and she's into art. So they find a wall to tag and instead of writing letters while they're texting, they just make little additions to the Aww. wall art and use and then write little phrases next to it like, is that the best you can do? And it's <laughs> like, I was thinking something more along the lines of this. And so they're communicating through a visual medium rather than just finding the right words. Yeah. And it's actually really sweet. And it comes back into the uh, thesis statement of the movie overall at the end, which we should probably get to at this point in right. the podcast. Yeah, the end of the film, the outcome. So how, do, how does this all usually play out? So in the classic version, Christian is killed in battle, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously very sad for Roxanne, who has, at this point, married him in secret. And then in both the Joe Wright version and the Rapineau version, a significant time passes where Roxanne is living in a convent with a bunch of nuns... Mourning. Mourning the passing of her beloved Christian. And Cyrano visits her each week and is slowly over time getting older, getting more sickly. Mm -hmm. In the Peter Dinklage version, he has a war injury and it's, you know, slowly kind of wearing away at him. It's um, convenient for a time skip. Yes, definitely. <laughs> In the Depardieu version, he is 
old and, and not super healthy, but he gets hit in the head on his way to visit her. He, uh, it's implied that it's kind of an assassination mm. by people who don't like him. Someone drops a log. Yeah, basically mm. gets hit by a log and wraps up his head, pretends like he's fine, and mm. goes on talking to Roxanne until eventually it's discovered that he's terminally injured. Mm. And he goes into this long final monologue where it's revealed, obviously, that he was the one writing the letters to Roxanne. But rather than focusing on his love for Roxanne, as is what happens in the 2021 version, where it's really just about this big love confession between them, mm-hmm. really what he goes on about is they can take his life, they can take his love, <laughs> but what he is left with in the end is his words, his panache, and that's how the movie, and I think you said the play also, yes. ends with him claiming at the very last, his panache. He dies with a smile on his face and goes out boldly, and he even comments that It's ironic in how many men that have tried to kill him, the thing that does him in is someone cowardly dropping something huge onto his head. And he muses on that and finds it funny. And so it adds a little levity into the scene. Whereas in the Joe Wright version, it's just... Very grave. And then as soon as he dies, we fade to black and the credits roll. And there's no time to process what just Mm -hmm. happened. Whereas I, I feel like in the play... It's more satisfying because it's that long monologue. I will say in the 90s version, Mm -hmm. it does start to feel a little silly because he goes on for so long. Uh You're like... I thought you were dying. He, I think. What's going on? Think, Let's go. I think that's in the play too, where he's he like, "Oh no, I'm not actually going to die here." For yeah. a while, and you're like, "Okay." I, that's so great, though. Like that's so <laughs> funny, and I think a bittersweet, fun way to end yeah, the story. Definitely. And hashtag Roxy. I don't think it's too monumental. Christian, as we had said, leaves out of self-respect. And then instead of going to war, Cyrus gets jumped by a bunch of people with a skateboard. Which I thought was like a very surprising moment. Mm. Out of, not consistent with the Like I was saying, totally inconsistent. Suddenly Mm -hmm. he gets like seriously beat up. Mm -hmm. And you're like, this was a children's movie a second ago. Right. She visits him in the hospital after figuring out that it was him. Finds a flash drive in his stuff with her name on it, which is horrifying. And then... Yeah, that's stalker behavior. <laughs> grand romantic gesture, and then they kiss under a sprinkler, and happy ending for everyone. Mm-hmm. In Sierra Burgess, it's really depressing, and such a fart of an ending it just pff, goes out. She writes a song called Sunflower that she posts online and everyone listens to it and immediately forgives her and understands her. Of course. She says, and there's a lyric, if I were a rose, maybe you'd want me, but I'm just a sunflower. It's not good. And then they do the kind of Animal House thing where they just have stills of characters. Oh, classic. And that's just how they wrap it all up. Guy asks her to the prom... 
uh, and says, yeah, you wouldn't be most people's type, but you're my type. And forgives all of the horrendous shit. And then I think she gets into college and just does long distance. The Veronica character wants to be, quote, a philosopher queen, which is not something they've said in the film. Yeah, just add some random they just stuff re- at the end. They just reference a bunch of superficial shit that kind of happened in the film, and it feels like they just phoned it in completely. I think in Roxanne, they go for the rom-com mm-hmm. kind of ending more explicitly. The one that we're all familiar with because of the year that it took place. Right. You know, the jock runs off. He finds a way With to his take... new bartender girlfriend. Right. He doesn't die. He just, like, says, Pieces I am out. not in the story anymore. <laughs> so that the two characters can fight and then reconcile. But right. uh, CB saves the town from a fire because his big nose apparently has a X-Men power where he can smell smoke. Right. Burning from miles away. And then they play, I've commented many times, the awful saxophone music that just happens in every scene within the movie. So cheesy. I think you loved it, though. It's it's very 87. Like, it's that 80s, 90s, Mm -hmm. very, like cheesy R&B saxophone I was ready, sound. I was ready for Michael Bolton to have like an R&B ballad <laughs> right. over the credits. Like that's, that's where it ends up. She's just like, I liked you for your personality. But there's a great scene where they're fighting and she kicks him out and Steve Martin just kind of riffs on it and it makes... It actually makes me want the characters to end up together mm-hmm. a little bit. He's like, get out of here. And she's like, this is my house. Yeah, she uh, she was like, you get out of here. And he's like, I'm on the porch. You get back in your house. <laughs> right. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I, I am out. You get in. You get in. <laughs> and like, it's very assertive and just mm-hmm. wanting to get the final word <laughs> in the argument. And I was like, that feels in spirit of the characters mm-hmm. and of the story. The ending of... The half of it, and I don't want to spoil it completely because I want people to go out and watch it, but she says at the very beginning, this isn't the kind of story where everybody gets what they wanted. In fact, no one does. No one ends up with what they thought they wanted, and it kind of rules. All of the characters get more in touch with themselves throughout the whole encounter. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but what do you think, Amber, that these stories say about love. Like, what do you think Cyrano mm-hmm. is emblematic of when it comes to the subject of love? Do you, do you have any takes on that? Right. Obviously, the um, really big, famous message that comes from Cyrano is, mm-hmm. like, it's not about how you look. It's not about mm-hmm. the external or the superficial. Love comes from within. Love is poetic and beautiful and internal you know, that extends, I think, through a lot of the adaptations that we've covered today. Mm. Yeah, what about you? I think when it comes to love with Cyrano, it's all of these characters, like we've said it, we've touched on it before, they want freedom, they want the truth, they all feel like they need their life to have meaning through achieving this one thing. Uh, Christian wants it out of Roxanne, Roxanne wants it out of Christian. Cyrano is willing to do this crazy, complicated, self-harming thing in order to achieve the same end result, although it already looks different. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of different versions of the story. 
here's why I like the half of it so much. Because I feel like it touches on things about love that align very much with my own views. The characters all do the same thing where they project onto each other and have these projections. But then one character, without giving too much context, one character in the film just states plainly, have you ever loved someone so much that you don't ever want them to change? You don't want anything about them to be different. And it contrasts what these characters expected out of each other with what they've actually learned mm -hmm. about each other. Mm -hmm. And it's this very self-accepting, self-affirming message. And they kind of surmise that love isn't that beautiful thing like in that bible verse it's messy and it's mm -hmm. daring and somebody surmises in the film that love is the chance of ruining something good in order to make something great That's beautiful. it's putting yourself out there it's putting whatever semblance of yourself that you think exists out there in order to be challenged or hurt or dented in mm -hmm. order to grow even more and in the pursuit of that desire is where you will find yourself. Mm. It's so corny. Like, the whole film does very corny things, but it is so beautiful. And I highly recommend people check it out because I, unlike your roommate's claims, it touches into some deep territory about the subject of love that yeah. I don't think many films want want to go because they want to get to the satisfying ending where everybody... Sure gets what they want and that the dreams come true, but it has the courage to not do that. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun going through all of these different versions of the story. I've found a deeper appreciation for it. Yeah. Pretty sure I'm going to steal some of it in my graduate uh, academic career. Do you have any closing thoughts about Cyrano as a whole or what this dive has done for you? You know, the conclusion I came to after watching three Cyrano's, four, four. Cyrano's, yeah. was that Cyrano needs some counseling. Oh, yeah? He needs some self-love help. Men will literally write you letters <laughs> every day before they go to therapy. <laughs> um, but I think it's... Uh, they will go to war and die. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It's a statement, I think, on the importance of being able to accept yourself in the pursuit of loving others. Because by loving others, mm -hmm. you have to accept being loved, mm -hmm. as they say in Moulin Rouge. And that's not always easy. It's sometimes very frightening to be loved for who you are. I think that um, what I took away from it the first time, because of, you know, personal struggles with imposter syndrome, with insecurity, that I think everybody deals with on some level. What I took away from the story the first time I saw it in its entirety was how great of a character or a person that Cyrano is in concept, but that it is this very small feature about him that he uses to keep himself from getting what he wants. Mm -hmm. And from making literally like all of the characters happy and becoming more of himself. It's that one human element that keeps him from being what he expects to be. I think in disability studies, that's very fascinating because there's a lot of self 
ableism and self-deprecation that people can do and that society reinforces. And it makes the character very endearing and I think is what spurred me to want to dive more into these iterations upon your suggestion uh, to do this. I think it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad we did it. Yeah, well, and after a long time, it is finally done. (laughs) So... I think we're about wrapped up. Is there are there any accounts that you would want to plug? Yeah, I'm on Instagram as at traveling mitten and girl. That's right. And thanks, somebody knows. And I'm on Letterboxd at Ray Wood. That's R A E Wood. And Graham, what about you? Well, first of all, I would like to make an apology because I corrected you the last time by giving the incorrect handle, because Ray Woodwar is a different handle that you use, and so then it was only until much later that I realized I corrected you on the air for nothing, um, because I didn't actually know it either. So <laughs> wanted to put that apology on the record. You can find me on Instagram at Instagram42, that's I-N-S-T-A-G-R-A-H-A-M underscore four two. And you can find me on Letterboxd as Trundle the Great. That is uh, T-R-U-N-D-L-E-T-H-G-R and then the number eight. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been so fun to do and we will see you next time. Bye.